Welcome back. Welcome back to Common Intellectual. We've got Johnny Myers. Johnny Myers from Ursinus College, economics and English major and former swimmer. He's got an awesome, awesome perspective on not only life but business and how his economics and English major combined. And he's now in graduate school, applying it even further and loved learning about his perspective on machine learning and beyond. Just an awesome conversation. So, without further ado, enjoy the experience. podcast Elliot Chavez thanks for uh thanks for having me on today I'm really excited to talk to you oh absolutely uh you come recommended from Don Slots which we talked before the show I think uh coming in recommended from Don Slots he's a well-rounded person who's had a lot of different experiences so that that's highly recommended for me yeah Don is a Don is a great guy um I don't know if Don's told you this, but he lived on my couch for two months after he graduated while he was uh, waiting for some citizenship papers to come in. So we spent the summer in Philly together. Uh, I was working a regular job. I was waiting for school to start. He was kind of hanging out more or less. So we had we had quite the time. <laughs> I did not realize that it was two months, but I did know that he had a short stint on your couch. What was that like? Especially because I remember telling him that I was moving to Atlanta to, to work. And also he was the only person I knew moving down here. So that's got to be a transition, especially as he tries to navigate that part of his life that I haven't met anybody who's had to try and navigate that. Well, it was a, uh, it was a lot of fun actually. Um, it was, we had a great deal where, you know, he could come stay on my couch, but, you know, just keep the place clean, do some dishes, you know, pitch in on the chores. But uh, it'd be great because in, in Philly, you have uh, sips every summer, which is, you know, uh, Wednesdays uh, after work, everyone goes out and gets drinks. And a lot of bars are doing discounts. A lot of young professionals are out networking. It's a big citywide thing. So, so I would get off work at five. I call him up. I said, Don, you know, hop on over to Pagano's and we'll start the night. So it'd be like a Wednesday and, you know, it'd be, it was super easy just to uh, meet up after work, get drinks and uh, hang out. So it was, uh, it's quite, it was quite a good time, quite a good summer we had. Yeah. So you're originally from a, a different area of the country as well. Don's from a different part of the world, essentially. And through our conversation, learning more about how, Americanized he is. I don't think I realized that and that he has spent most of his life here. Um, but you being from California, that coming to her sinus, is, I'm guessing it's a big shift, but even more so to have the opportunity to stay. What, what was that journey like to be able to decide that you wanted to stay? And I mean, me, I came from St. Louis. And so that's something that I, I always found interesting about the different parts of the country. What made you want to stay in Philly? Um, 
So there's a few, there's a few things. I, I have lived in California for as long as I can remember. I was born in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, and when I was applying to colleges, I knew I wanted to be out of state because I love California and I love the life I lived there, but I wanted something new. I felt like I hadn't really explored a lot of this country. Um, I wanted to find a new experience, find new people, understand a different perspective because California is, especially where I was from, is pretty homogenous. It's pretty clear path of what a lot of people do, which is go work in tech, they go work in finance, they go whatever. Um, and a lot of it is staying in that area and living a great life, which is, you know, fantastic for a lot of people, but I wanted to pursue something different. So, uh, I love Southeast Pennsylvania. I really do like the people. It's a, it's a really nice place to live. It's a really easy place to live. It's, uh, low stress, low cost of living. Um, Philly is a great city. Philly has blown my expectations away. I never really had thought about living in Philly when I was growing up. And, and now that I'm here, I'm like, why would I live anywhere else? So it's, uh, it's a wonderful place to be a young person. It's a wonderful place to, um, look around. There's a lot of families living in Philly now. That's the thing that kind of surprised me. There's a lot of young living in the city and i never thought that like uh, in san francisco that's impossible i mean it's totally flat out too expensive too crowded it's too much but here i mean a lot of uh, a lot of people are super happy with it so i really uh i really enjoy this perspective coming from a totally different place and learning and understanding other people's uh viewpoints that's been really special to me yeah i think coming from Philly to Atlanta has given me a new perspective because I don't know if I'd consider Philly low stress just because that was my first experience with traffic and that was uh, eye opening. I mean, I felt like that everybody was <laughs> on my ass and I didn't know what to do. And um, also being on a sports team, it kind of was like, Oh, these guys are no bullshit. They are, they just grind. And I, that was my first experience with that as well. Um, and then moving to Atlanta, it's more of that Southern comfort where you, you see the, the people who really want to make you feel a part of something and it could be fake. It could be not. And so you have to kind of dig through that bullshit. But I think Philly gives you an ability to dig through it because you get to really see what people are like. They're more hard nosed, more blue collar esque. And, um, and Philly gives you that ability to, to recognize what's real and what's not. Totally. Totally agree with that. Um, totally agree about the traffic point, but I don't have a car living without mm. a car has been, I spent this year without a car and it's been awesome. Uh, I encourage people to not use cars as the primary means of transit. That's my new, that's my new, um, you know, passion project is to try to encourage people. I mean, Shevitz, I know you, I know you're a big car guy and you, you well, I did, I lived in DC two summers ago. Um, that's crazy to say that. I feel like it was like yesterday, but <laughs> I didn't have a car. I, I left it in Arlington, Virginia and didn't touch it the entire summer. I was using public transportation all summer because it was right. easier, it was cheaper and I didn't have to deal with the traffic. So I completely get where you're coming from. It's, uh, it's definitely convenient. We're finding 
I live with my girlfriend and we're finding different ways to get around and live our lives like either biking to bars or biking to different places to get food and uh it's been fantastic it's been really nice so that's my that's my small passion project you know <laughs> trying to figure but out how to get started that well um it started because i really couldn't afford to get a car <laughs> that's so a great would, start I lived in West Philly and I, I had to get to work every day when I worked in a building and, uh, you know, it was a mile and a half east and I had to figure out a way to get there. So I started taking the bus and the bus was getting kind of expensive because it's like two, $2.50 each time you get on. And it's like, well, this is five bucks a day or five times 20 is a hundred bucks a month. And if I can get a bike for $150, then I saved myself six weeks of bus commuting. So I went out and got a bike and I got it down to $120. So it's like, well, five weeks in, this is going to pay for itself. So I've had the bike for a year and I figured, well, the bike is going to uh, pay for itself by not being a car. So if I can put the value on getting a car at like $4,000 with all the tires, with all the insurance, with all the gas, as it adds up uh, in the next, let's say two years, Maybe it'll be more expensive than that, but I'll call it 4000 Then that's my budget for bike improvements on this $120 bike. So, so far I've spent like maybe a total of 500 bucks improving the bike, including what I paid the 120 So 500 bucks for transport for the next, for the past year and for the next year and for the year, for the years coming, I think that's a, that's a, that's a tough deal to beat. I mean, that's that's is is pretty frugal, and I'm a big fan. And with bikes, I mean, you can. Uh, I took out the seat, I took out the pedals, I took out the handlebars, I took out the chain, I took out the cassette, I took out the front gears, everything. I'm doing the tires in a few weeks. I'm doing, and you can slowly like add in and take out parts, and it's pretty easy to get what was once a piece of crap pretty operationally nice, like a a pretty quality. Uh, transition you know uh, transportation vehicle so it's it's a it's a bargain dude it's a deal <laughs> yeah and i i love that that's what you're trying to do because especially in a city it's just you don't have to deal with the stress either i mean maybe drivers being on your butt being being ridiculous but i feel like that's just philly that's just it. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to change that anywhere. <laughs> right, exactly. So what took you to uh, Philadelphia in the first place? We met at Ursinus College. So what took you to Ursinus College? And how did you find out about it from California? Well, a few things uh, popped on my radar, you know, with Ursinus. So I was trying to get out of California. That was clear. I was looking at smaller schools. That much was clear too. I didn't want to go to a bigger school. I didn't want to go to a state school. It just wasn't, I'm an odd guy and I don't think I would fit in at a, at a big state school. I kind of need like that really personalized thing. You know, I'm explain, <laughs> I'm odd. explain odd because I feel like everybody in some sense is odd. So explain yeah. what you mean by odd. I'm a funky character. Like I got a, like I'm doing all this weird stuff. Like I'm uh I'm doing a uh, finance. I'm getting my master's in quantitative finance. That's a pretty odd field to study. I'm super interested in literature, gardening, uh, biking. Like I have all these weird passions and like, I feel like at a big state school, you kind of have to be one thing. I got a degree in English from her sinus and now I'm studying math. So it's like, you know, I don't think you could do 
like all these different things at a big school. Like you kind of have to be, you, you don't have a lot of flexibility. Whereas as a scientist, you could kind of be like this totally unique character and you could have all these different passions and people will support you. It's super easy to get in touch with experts, you know, and pros in their field just to spark up a conversation. Shevitz, you know, as well as I, man, like you just kind of pop in a professor's office and just start talking and it's easy enough. Right. So I wanted that. I didn't want to go to school where it's like big. I don't know. I didn't, I wasn't attracted to that. Um, so or sinus popped up. It's on the book, uh, colleges that change lives, you know, letter U going to be near the end. So I had to go through the whole book and I got my favorites and I came to the end and I thought, you know, this was, uh, this is going to be an interesting school. I'll do it. I'll look at it, whatever. What's funny, Shevitz, is I, uh, I went for the tour. I flew out for the tour. I flew out for a few schools, but the tour at our sinus was memorable because when I came for the first time, it was terrible. It was the worst tour I've ever gotten. Um, I walked into the campus safety office and the bells were ringing. Like some bell was going off, some alarm. And they're like, we don't know how to fix that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to school. That's so shyness. Alarms where alarms are just going off. <laughs> That's so it was hysterical. It was hysterical. I mean, I remember the tour thinking, like, wow, like I don't I don't think this is like my kind of place. But I but I was like, I'll I'll keep it on the list. It wasn't the worst, it wasn't the best, whatever. And then I met the people on the second, you know, uh the second round of like thinking about schools, I talked to some people. I met some people in person, actually. I went back out there. I met some of the swim team members, and that was it. I mean, when you think about the quality of people that come out of sinus and spend their time there, it's, it's like unparalleled to a lot of other places. I spend some time here at Drexel now. It's not even close. I mean, the characters at sinus are super unique, super caring, super attentive. So, man, it's it's... It was something else when I met people. Yeah, I mean, I I think that was it for me as well. When I when I went, I knew that my parents had always pushed smaller schools. My mom went to a smaller school, all girls actually, and she said, "This is going to be your fit." And I remember driving up to her sinus, and it it felt different just driving up to the campus than other schools. It didn't seem to be overwhelming from a campus standpoint and then my overnight it was the relationship that everybody had on the lacrosse team that really drew me to what really felt to be different and and so I can understand that and I feel like that's similar to a lot of local art schools where you are able to understand what the mission is and also you talk about characters I think that's such an interesting word to use because you are able to wear so many different hats. And I didn't even know that you were an English major, by the way. I thought that you were economics because you were in my econometrics class. And uh, I had no idea. What, yeah. made, what made you go with English? And also, why would you take the hardest class in the economics major when that's not your focus? Yeah. Yeah, so, so I, um, I got a... I got a, both two degrees in one in English and one in economics. So I had to take econometrics with you, my man. Um, Love it. My, I did English because I was a big reader in high school. Uh, so I took four English classes my senior year 
And the school kind of said, like, you can't do that. You need to take other classes. And I kind of said, sorry. So I took four classes anyway. And I don't think one of them ended up counting, but like I did, I don't know. <laughs> I took AP English. I took the AP and I like totally bombed it because I really didn't care. But I was more interested in like the books that we read in the conversations. So, uh, so that was, that was pretty cool. I had it. I had a really good time with that. I figured, you know, why not major in this? Why not get that as a second major? Um, I could fit it in my schedule, which is really nice. I like that you could do both. Uh, I ended up enjoying it. Um, I learned a lot. I had some pretty good uh, conversations and thoughts about language and structure and theory and all that. So that was a pretty, um, it was a pretty helpful thing for my career and personal development. Yeah. Was English more like the CIE course or, and also in high school was, was that an introduction to the CIE course? Cause you mentioned the readings and I feel like CIE was based on the readings, but even more so based on those four questions, uh, but encouraging that conversation. Well, it's, it's different than English courses because CIE is about personal interpretations where, where English, where books might be more about, um, author intent or textual analysis or other kind of stuff like that, kind of more um, removed. And CIE makes you question, ask questions about how does this relate to you? You know, I, you don't, you don't read Othello and go, how is this impacting my life? You read Othello and go like, what is, what is going on? Who are these characters with the plot and all that? And uh, so that's, that's how I would make that distinction. And in high school, what was that like? Did it, do you feel like there was any questions that asked more about who you are as a person? I think in a few regards, it was a while ago. <laughs> I was, I met, I met my buddy from high school. He came out for a weekend a long time ago and like, I guess a few months ago now. And I said to him like, high school was like six years ago. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, I feel so old now. And especially being on my own, it's just like college was almost, it was over a year ago. And now I'm going into my second year of adulthood. And it's like, I do not feel that old. <laughs> totally removed. Once you leave, once you like graduate and get out, you're like, who is still there that I remember? Yes. <laughs> it's totally different. And so when you're deciding on your major, you said that you didn't do well on the AP exam for English. No, but, I didn't. But you still I stuck didn't do with well it. On, <laughs> I didn't do well on a lot of my APs, which was uh which was unfortunate. And here's kind of the funny thing. Like APs are supposed to kind of get you out of college classes. You know, they, they have two options. They have two operations. The first is they signal that you're a smart, attractive candidate. I had a good enough GPA, so I didn't need to signal much more than that, Other, you know, unless I was going to apply to more selective universities, but I wasn't. So, so then option two was you're going to, opt out of a few classes. My thought process was like, well, I'm not planning on graduating early. Like I want to be there for the four years. I want the experience. And if I'm going to do that, then I'm not, I don't really have a need to opt out of classes. I would like to take college level classes 
even if it's in subjects I don't like, just to experience it rather than try to cram it all in a test as a high schooler. So I said, you know, APs are not, they were not important to me. And what was important to me was uh, doing well in the pool. I was a swimmer, um, doing well with my grades because that was still a signal and uh, spending time with my friends before I went off to college. So you can call me a slacker, sure, but uh, I think I had different priorities. <laughs> <laughs> I took an economics class my junior year, AP micro, and the professor said if you don't pass this or by getting a four or five, then you didn't learn anything. And I got a three. And I don't think I've talked to this professor since, but I remember being so self-conscious of that and being like, oh my gosh, I guess I just didn't learn anything when from my perspective, I just wasn't a good standardized test taker and I didn't also prepare for it the way that I should have but it took me internally to a bad place and think oh I'm just not smart but then once I got to college I realized how much about the experience it really is and it shifted my mindset so I think we both had different mindsets coming into the same area and saying you know this experience is much more valuable than what I'm getting out of the course because the journey of her sinus was something that I wouldn't trade for anything. I I know what I got in some of the classes, but I remember those relationships with the professors, with the people that were in the class and the conversations that were had. And I find that much more valuable too. I think it's funny that your high school professor said that. And this is something I'm spending more time like grappling with. Like I'm getting, he my said, master's. he said a monkey could get a three, a monkey. He said, his, that was his words. That's pretty, that's pretty belittling. I don't know. I mean, and this is, this is part of the trend where it's like, you know, you have education and I think most people think that education is the learning. And I think the learning is really outside of the education. It's unfortunate. And I don't know if that's a, like just an American structural problem or if that's just a broad human experience problem because I'll give you an example. I'm working on, I'm going to grad school right now. I'm working on a project with a few other people. One of the guys I'm working with, like doesn't have a job. He's just doing school right now. I'm working too. So I'm busy. Like I have a, I have a full-time job. I'm doing school on the side. The dude who doesn't, who's not working, he, like he can just spend all of his time reading about all of the stuff and learning it on his own and reading books and watching videos and really diving into the material. And I'm kind of here just to kind of check the box and, you know, assignment completed, assignment completed, you know, material gone through. Right. And there's a part of me where it's like, well, I really wish I could sit down with this material and grapple with it and spend like 18 hours a day, going in and learning how to use the software, going and learning, you know, about these non-parametric regression equations, but I'm kind of just here to get the degree. Like, I don't, I don't want to be blunt about it, but like, I, I'm, the, with the time I'm afforded, with the work I'm doing right now with my job and with doing school also, taking four classes, like I'm just kind of, I'm learning it, but I'm also here to get the, get the check mark. So I've got a few other materials here that I'm learning on the side and I can, I'll show you them. I've got 
I've got this book here, which is called Hands-On Machine Learning with Scikit-Learn Tensor, and TensorFlow. So this is like, not, it's not my curriculum, but I said, you know, machine learning is going to be this huge thing. I might as well be on the front end of the curve rather than the back end of the learning curve. So I'm going through this now. It's like, like my professors are kind of talking about gradient descent and it's kind of sloppy and it's kind of whatever. So I figured you're like, I'll get this book and I'll sit down with it and go through it. So I'm going through that. I've got this R for data science book. This one's fun. This one's more of plotting and visualizing and understanding uh, data analysis, some data science, a little light on the quantitative stuff, a little more on the practical stuff. So, you know, I, I encourage people to go get an education. More than that, I prefer that they learn. Uh, and there's things you can do to learn. And it's usually cheaper. Yeah, explain what the the R is. Uh, I, R is the visual learning, but also the uh, the other book as well, because that I have never heard of from that. Okay. Machine learning. Okay, so R is, Shevitz, you and I worked in SAS when we did econometrics. R is yes. like if SAS, uh, if like SAS sat down and had a cup of coffee and like just relaxed, right? Like R is super easy. <laughs> I love that. Super straightforward to use. I mean, it's like, it's super pretty. Like there's, it's, like SAS, there's too much going on. It's not really for people who want to get things done. It's for like economists who want to measure nanometers. And like, I, I think R, you know, you can do that. You can do all the cool quantitative advanced stuff, but it's like a little bit more built in. It's a little bit more people friendly. You know, it's, it's for the regular human mind. So I'm, I'm a big fan of R. It's free. You can get online. Super light. Tons of users, tons of documentation, so it's not it's not hard to get into. It's, it's as long as you get your stuff, you're good. Um, we can talk about this too. This uh, this is machine learning with Python. Python's another more user friendly code. It's it's gotten more popular today, and I'm not going to pretend I was there early. I'm hopping on the popularity train. Uh, this is more um, how, what are the different sub topics of machine learning? So we can get into, let me find a, let me find a little topic. Uh, um, decision boundaries, looking at images and the image says this is a flower, making that pop, you know, here's the founder flower. I found it here in this box. Um, some regression stuff, dimensionality regression, reduction, never heard of it. I'm going to get through this. The curse of, you get all these cool little. So I'm, I've just started this, but uh, there's some really interesting math. And if you sit down and if you understand what the symbols are saying, you can really get pretty far. Do you like just reading it or do you try and read it and then apply it to the software? Yeah, yeah. You, you do exercises and you do both. My girlfriend's trying to figure out what I'm doing right now. I'm on a podcast week. So that's what, that's what I'm doing. I'm also reading some high literature. So I have um, Star Wars, mm. uh, Darth Bane, Path of Destruction. This is some more high-level academic uh, theory-oriented, really grounded work. Very um, academic. I think this takes place 
in episode six. Uh, my friend got this for me. I said, don't buy it for me. He bought it, so now I have to read it. There you go. <laughs> have you read so any Dar- of the Star Wars? No, this is my, uh, my first venture into the Star Wars um, literature, the canon. The galaxy. The galaxy, yeah. Um, I hope it's good. I hope it's good. <laughs> what kind of literature do you like to read in your spare time other than Star Wars? Well, for now, um, I like macroeconomic stuff. Um, not like, I don't know, like, I don't read fun books anymore, unfortunately. I wish I had time to. I've read, um, I read this great book called Crashed by Adam Tooze about tracing the 2008 financial crisis to today and all of the different countries that have been affected and to what degree and the coordination, you know, like it's, it's synchronized. I think a few decades ago, you would have like one economy crash and, you know, that sucks for them, but the rest of the global financial system would be more or less like stable. But now like with what happened in 2008, you have a lot more synchronization because a lot of governments and institutions all hold each other's assets. They're all like this and like a few slippings and you could, you could have a global meltdown. This is very interesting stuff. That was my most favorite read recently. My dad always said, if the United States gets sick, then the rest of the world sneezes. I felt like that was a perfect analogy to my introduction into economics to make sure that I understood that everything is connected from in an economic sense, that we have to rely on our economic stability to make sure that the rest of the world can still function because you're so right because from a macro perspective we are relying on other countries to produce our goods we just don't produce goods in the united states anymore so what does that do to our economy where we are the the business economy and then the other countries become the industrial economies and what does our industry look like and so i think that's really interesting what does that book really provide for you and what kind of sense have you gotten from it? A few things. First is that we need to be really careful about our trust in global financial institutions. Uh, um, in large banks, the Federal Reserve, there's a few institutions where, you know, we like to think that there are some really brilliant people and they're acting in everyone's best interest. But, you know, first of all, banks are, they have shareholders and their job is to make money. So if you're asking a barber, if you need a haircut, you'll get yeah, the answer. Yes. And I can give you a haircut. You need, you need to have a few questions in mind when you're dealing with some of these institutions saying, should we participate in uh, some transactions? Right. Right. I mean, think about, think about a bank's job. The bank makes money you know, broadly when there's a suggestion that's acted on. The suggestion could be you should uh, go public. You know, an investment bank can offer that. You should issue debt. You should hire a consultant and we have a consulting team. You should have a risk management team and we have some risk products you can buy. So a lot of companies 
are not really asking themselves the question like, you know, if I, if I take the advice of this, like who's really, who's really benefiting and what happens or the consequences of that. It, so that's a tough question. I think the other things are understanding personally, you know, where does your money go when you make it, you know, you, you make all this money, you go out and spend it and your spending is someone else's income. So think about this. So I used to go in the city. I used to spend 10 bucks a day on lunch. I'd go out. I'd get a salad from guys just making the salad outside. Now that I'm working from home in my jammies, I make, I make pasta in the box. So the guy's income is gone because I'm not in the city anymore. So that has working in salad. He's not feeding me. They're on un unemployment. Unemployment has to go up. Unemployment benefits have to go up and I have to pay through for that through my taxes. So it's honestly times cheaper for me to just buy a $10 salad every day than it is for my taxes to go up to pay for those unemployment benefits, keep that family going. Now that's a that's kind of a simplification, but there are huge second and third order consequences to a lot of first order decisions when you're not uh, second and third order consequences to first order decisions. And um, the best to you that you can as people like think about the consequences of a few actions. And there's a few actions you can take to minimize uh, bad second and third order consequences. It's really thinking about my, my income, my spending, um, what values do I hold? Where do I want to put money? And, uh, you know, generally, broadly thinking like that. That's what I got from it. Yeah. Where do you think it's changed? not really the theme of the book, <laughs> right? No, but where do you think it's changed your consumer spending in that sense? Like, are you more cognizant of it or do you think it's just a, a change in mindset? Totally. And I told you about the example with my bike. I gave myself a $4,000 budget to work on a hundred dollar bike. That's, I mean, that's a free wheel. Um, other things. I've got a great example somewhere. Some food stuff. I think, uh, we got, Oh, we got the crock pot. You buy a crock pot used for like 20 bucks and you have now unlocked all these meals for cheaper with a rice cooker. Same deal. I mean, you buy a $20 rice cooker and you save a present value of maybe 50 to 100 to a couple hundred on going out for meals because you can buy rice in bags and make rice and other meals. Now, that does obviously have consequences for people who sell rice at restaurants, I guess. But, you know, I mean, there are things that people can do. Um, I got a safety razor. Yeah, I mean, I used to have... Um, like a Gillette Fusion Pro Glide. And I'd have to get the new packs every month and they would be like 10 bucks for four of them. And you're throwing away a lot of plastic and you're throwing away a lot of blades. And I'm like, this is kind of stupid. So I spent 40 bucks on the safety razor and I got six blades, a uh, hundred blades for $6. So now I've got $46 spent, but I can shave for the rest of my life because it's a hundred blades and I don't shave a lot and you can use them over and over. So, I mean, 
I mean, there's things like that, you know. It seems almost common sense because when we were in economics, I feel like going back to the point of you get more out of the lessons that you learn outside of the classroom. I think one of the big takeaways for me was that you need to be able to question everything and it should never just be taken at face value. And especially that book. Um, oh my gosh. Van Freakonomics. No, Van Gilder's book. Oh, I have it. Hold on. Every data. Every day. Every data. It was, and I want to plug the author as well. Every data by John H. Johnson, <laughs> PhD. Yep. I think that was the first time realizing that there was more to education and that you need to be able to question. That's what I loved about economics was that if you take things at face value, you're going to be left behind. And because the people in power are thinking two or three steps ahead to realize, oh, well, if, if this population isn't thinking this way, then we need to be shifting this way to either distract or something like that. But even on the smaller scale, what kind of things can we be doing in our everyday life to be questioning and to be realizing, okay, what kind of things are a facade? Gillette, it's a facade. You got $50 blades for a four pack or an eight pack and a blade is just not worth that much money. And so it comes down to, are you going to spend money for their marketing? Or are you going to spend money for your necessity? Yeah. I mean, you, you're exactly right. I mean, some dick brain is on TV making a ton of money trying to sell me on this. And if that's the case, you know, somebody to market razor blades to me, it's a razor blades. Like, what am I not? Why would I, why, why would I pay someone to market razor blades to me? That doesn't make any sense. So I, you got to ask a few of those questions. If someone's trying to sell you on something, you know, your spidey senses should be going up. I, I agree. It comes down to questioning. Cause I think when, when it, when things are taken at face value, then you have issues of ignorance. And I think that's where a lot of people's anger comes from is that their lack of understanding and their lack of, um, really being able to have that conversation because you are being fed information all day. And if you do take it at face value, it, it forms opinions. That's the goal. Here's an interesting theory. Shavitz, I read, I read recently the big scarcity in the industrial revolution was capital and you have to go out, you have to convince people to invest in your business. You have to kind of make a good sales pitch. And like, even then people are very reluctant. They want to see a lot of financial statements. They want to see a lot of proof. That's how our current markets are kind of today. The big scarcity today to, to capitalize on is focus and attention. And there's a lot of different companies that are really trying and succeeding on capturing people's attention. And if you can fight that, if you can reclaim some of that, if you can reclaim some of the focus and attention, the content, the wealth of content and information and knowledge available today is unparalleled in human history with regards to its ease of access, with regards to the flatness 
by which it's accessible. I mean, it's you you would I would describe that as a flat way of gathering information. But there are the hurdles that are in the way are large tech companies clavering for your eyeballs and hours during the day. And if you not only ask a lot of questions, you know, you can ask a lot of questions and that can get you pretty far. But if you focus on finding information, you can go a lot farther rather than having passing interests on some, some interests, you know, like having passing focus and attention. That's where I think this generation and the next generation is going to be really challenged with. You could probably go out and find investors for your business if you want to start a small business, because I think there's a lot of investors that are sitting on big piles of cash and they're looking for something to fund. There's a lot of different places to go get fundraising today. I mean, it's not, that's not a big hurdle. The big hurdle is, can you sit and do something for 12 or 14 or 16 hours without being distracted? That's my question. That's my, that's my puzzle. Where do you think machine learning falls into that? On the, they're on the war, they're on the opposite side of regular people. I mean, some of the technology that goes into developing algorithms for capturing attention. I mean, the joke is really, I mean, you have exceptional students coming out of high powered universities and, you know, big, big, big brainiacs. And like their job is to try to get people's attention for like three tenths of a second longer or like improve click rate by half a percent next month rather than, you know, building new bridges and new roads and saving people time and money or rather than solving social problems or rather than, you know, (laughs) doing something materially meaningful. It's how can we, let's say allocate the most scarce resource, you know, our knowledge and our free time towards getting other people, as many people as possible, getting their attention. And the machine learning, this field of science is now being deployed to trying to capitalize on that. How much can we get people to emote and react? It's kind of a, it's kind of a big challenge. You can think of an emotion kind of as a germ or a virus a different way of thinking about emotions. And if a, if a emotion is successful as a germ, it'll spread. So if you find some content, content is just a transmission of the germ. And the ones that are successful are the ones that are going to spread the fastest. And it doesn't really matter which emotion it is. It's just, if it strikes an emotion, you know, that emotion has been planted in the host and into the guest now. So some scientists have found, I can find this paper, scientists have found that the most successful germ emotion is anger. When people are angered by something, that is the most contagious germ. So that's why I think there's a lot of content on the internet today. And machine learning algorithms can tap into this about using people's anger to fuel conversation or to fuel engagement or to fuel attention and focus away from productive things and towards unproductive 
conversation, unproductive action, counterproductive uh, politics, counterproductive ways to spend our time and ways to live together. It's a huge social cost, but the people that own information and its vectors, how information passes from one to another, um, have made a killing on it. It's a very profitable business to deploy a few algorithms and get the public very angry. I think anxiety has a role in it as well. The feeling of anxiousness, especially in the times we're in now, but even before you go and instinctively click on the Instagram app or instinctively on Facebook and it, you don't even think about it. And then you're like, how did I even end up here? And it's really just an anxiety that lives within that they know manifests within everybody. And then they're just able to use that algorithm to attach to it as the germ. And that's not an accident that you feel like that when you close out a Snapchat and then instantly open it back up again because you kind of have forgotten, but you're like, oh, wait, I was just here. That is 100% intentional and that's completely monitored and tracked and it's reported back to see how many times a day can someone get you to do that. I mean, that's not, this is a science. I had a friend in government who said, don't put anything on Snapchat that you want other people to see. And I was like, they disappear. And they were like, to you, it disappears. And that's startling because you think of how many people have posted things that they believe is just being sent to a person. And they don't think about it as a posting. And then that makes people realize it's, it's something different. It's going to be especially hard because you and I are, you know, you know, you and I graduated from college were relatively sophisticated and savvy. And I think a lot of people that are just going about their day, even if you try to explain this, even, you know, some people might just not care. Some people might not understand. And a lot of people are just too young to understand that there are permanent consequences to short-term actions. So when you're in high school, when you're in middle school, and you have these technologies and they're really well marketed. It is kind of like marketing cigarettes to children. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a child's brain cannot comprehend that posting an embarrassing photo or a, a humiliating photo or anything like that, like has long-term repercussions way beyond the life of how long it sits in your memory. It's, it's really tough. Especially since machine learning is at its core, it's binary. You're, you're making yes and no decisions on, on things. And when you get engagement, the algorithm is trained to push it to the top. And if you have something that has a lot of engagement, it becomes the marketing tool. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's scary. And I think as we are quarantined we become more aware or at least some become more aware of what the true root cause is of a lot of the issues and then some like you said continue to go about their life normally and that's also very scary because i believe we're seeing right now the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer but i don't know if people see it that way because maybe they're on an unemployment and they feel content with where they are uh, 
And I had a discussion with my manager who asked me about unemployment and she said, Elliot, what if people don't want to come back and work? And I said, some may not, but as an economics major, and she was an economics major as well, I think we understand that money is not something that can just be printed and there's not going to be long-term consequences. And so I want to be able to work for a corporation rather than be paid off unemployment because in some way there could be a consequence that we just don't even see. And we don't know what it is, but I feel like long-term this could be something that is quite daunting. There's a lot of questions around that. There's a lot of questions around that. I have a problem with companies that prioritize scale. Think about Amazon constantly saying, you know, we're finding different ways to scale our business. We're finding different ways to Facebook to finding different ways to scale. You know, scale is a double-edged sword because for the company scale means doing more with fewer inputs, getting, you know, you've seen a logarithmic or parabolic line where the number of inputs required is over time getting less and the number of outputs for each new input increases. That might be a little complicated, but you can imagine that. So what is that yeah, for mean? everybody that's listening to the podcast? It's basically a curve that is starting at the point zero and going up. It's half of a bell curve essentially. Is exactly. Exactly. And so what, what that means for the company is we can get away with using fewer inputs to get more outputs. And so everything that's not the company has to deal with those inputs. So think about it like this. If there are 20 people in an economy and, they, and, and only 10 people need to make all the food and suddenly the guy is like, hey, you know, I found a way to scale our business. So we only really need five people to make all the food. So before you had 10 people not working, now you have 15 people not working. So scale is a problem with regards to human capital with labor. It's a problem with resources. If you can scale some resources, other resources aren't being used. So you don't need to make all your cars in Youngstown, Ohio, if you can scale more efficiently. And a lot of parts of the country are getting left behind because some industries can scale quicker than others. Um, thinking the difference between Ford and Tesla, I mean, Tesla has the ability to scale in a lot of different directions. They can take advantage of that with building factories really anywhere. That's lowest cost of inputs. But when it was a unit in, unit out kind of world, you know, you could have a really strong, you could build a really strong middle class. I'm really trying to formulate this theory because when people talk about scaling industries, the, the externalities are often bigger than the, the generated profits that business gets on a society basis. But for the company, they don't give a shit. I mean, they just found a way to make more out with less. That's what everybody wants to do. But there's huge repercussions to that everywhere. So that's a, that's, it's very difficult. And what do you, what do you mean by theory and what kind of things are you thinking about when forming that? Well, I sit around all day and I do my work and I think about big economic questions and, you know, we look at investments and a lot of the stock market is moving in the same direction. Like we all like big tech and, you know, there's really a few investments that are really attractive with regards to its growth prospects. 
And you sit there and you think like Coca-Cola has to go buy sugar and buy aluminum and buy water and then make the can and then sell the can and market the can and advertise the can. And you could probably do your best to figure out how many cans of soda they're going to sell next year and how much is sugar going to cost next year. And those are all kind of inputs. But with technology scale, you kind of have people sitting at a computer and if you want to hire more people for that, that's fine. If you want to outsource that to anywhere else in the world, that's fine too. But the scalability on that is, is like enormous. Like he, like if, if, if you use the algorithms correctly, you don't really need to do a lot to dramatically grow a business. Um, it, it does work on the reverse side though. You can blow up pretty quickly, but, uh, if you can grow quickly and hold on, that's great for the individual, but it's bad for, I would say, a lot of... Yeah, how so? How things. can it blow up? Well, businesses are always risky. You can get funding pulled from you. You can lose your best talent. You can... The thing might not work. I mean, it's, it's, it's a high-flying world, and I think the high-flying tech companies are of yesterday. And I think today we know who the established players are and they can do and will do what it takes to keep everything else at bay. I mean, when Facebook bought Instagram, I guess it's four or five years ago now, um, that was kind of the moment when people were saying being in a risky tech startup is not attractive. And then Facebook made an offer to Snapchat to buy Snapchat. And I think the interesting thing is now Facebook doesn't need to buy Snapchat because Snapchat is a research company. That's all they are now. They're a research company. And if they unroll a new feature that a lot of people love, Facebook can go in and just steal it. And if people don't like that feature on Snapchat, then Facebook doesn't need to steal it. So they don't need to have Snapchat on their books. It's really a brilliant thing. The other problems are with Amazon copying, um, some of the best-selling products and pushing their own branded items uh, first in the algorithm. So that's making a lot of people think, you know, like, do I want to get into an industry where I sell a product? And if I have to go through Amazon, is that attractive? Well, for Amazon shareholders, that's incredible scale. For everybody else, you know, people can't sell like dishes and toaster ovens and anything because Amazon's got a branded product and that's really difficult. So, I mean, that's, these are tough questions. These are really tough questions and I love it. Well, I think it's just interesting because you say that it's easy to blow up, but I think you talk about the tech firms and you can't blow them up because their investments are so diversified. And the, the Facebook purchase of Instagram was in, in a way forced like they instagram can't say no to facebook and you give them a price tag that and also the power of facebook that combination and you can't defeat that and now i think we're exactly. realizing um when it when it comes to antitrust laws it, it becomes so polarizing to realize what what the true mission is and going back to earlier, it comes back to shareholders and who is going to answer uh, to if there is a loss in profit or if there is no growth because 
that attention span is so short and these investors won't return now. And if you don't give it to them, then they're going to go somewhere else. The history of antitrust law. I'll give it to you in two characters. You have Brandis and Booth. And so Brandis was an economist who was kind of a more of a lawyer, more in law. But his theory was, you know, with regards to antitrust, with regards to the railroads, he said, it's really about competition and making everybody better off and thinking about the whole picture and thinking about governments and thinking about unemployment. I mean, this is not a new conversation. This is a conversation that's going on for a long time. If, if maybe prices are lower, but a lot of competition in small businesses are hurt, then we shouldn't have big industries like this because they are toxic to the public and the commonplace. That was like in railroads. On the other side of that coin is Booth or the Chicago School of Business, um, which all they said was, well, if prices are lower, then there is no harm because consumers get better prices. And that's kind of what we want to do with economics. We want to be able to sell more things for less money so that people can use their money to buy other things. We all have insatiable needs and insatiable wants, and we have scarce resources. So let's minimize prices as much as possible and get as many things as we want. So when you're thinking about Amazon, it's really tough because in some cases, prices might not be lowered. Prices might actually be high or higher or stay the same as before Amazon came in. And you can use these machine learning algorithms to price specific consumers at different price points. So the classic example is Amazon trying to buy diapers.com. There's a company that's trying to just sell diapers online. And Amazon said, you know, we will buy you now. And they said, we're not going to sell to Amazon. We're going to rival Amazon. And what happened was Amazon ran a deal for mothers moms, Amazon moms, I think it was, and started selling diapers at huge discounts. And their argument was, well, we're good for prices and they can use their other business segments to subsidize the losses. But that will ultimately lead to a huge hit to diapers.com's bottom line. And so what happened was Amazon went in again to diapers.com and bought them for a huge discount to what they were worth. But when that happened, Amazon then discontinued Amazon Moms. And diaper prices are where they were before the competition. So if you were looking at this from a pure price perspective, I would say that that was wrong. I would say that that was an impairment. That was a direct violation of the law. And that's how we operate in the United States. Our law says as long as consumers benefit, it doesn't really matter. And if you looked at it from the Brandeis perspective, from the, is everyone taken care of? That's still wrong because you lost competition and you don't have competitive businesses. With machine learning algorithms, prices for diapers for me are going to be priced differently based on my order history than prices for diapers from a new mom. You are thinking in the way we've written these laws about antitrust and about pricing is really outdated and the people that are writing these laws are like 
80 years old. They have no idea how to have these conversations, how to hold companies accountable, how to be really thoughtful and precise with their language. So I'm not optimistic about things changing with regards to competitive laws until we get younger people really across any party, but just younger people that understand what's going on. Because this is not like the railroads. This is not the robber barons. This is a whole different type of price discrimination and anti-competitive measure. And then you get into the Facebooks and Googles of the world where their services are completely free. And how are they monetizing off of our data? Exactly. And then it becomes a whole different type of price gouging. And what do you see and what do you feel? The internet is not even a tactile place. And if you can argue about Coca-Cola cans, then that's one thing. But to argue about internet pricing and content and time and you're not paying anything, but there are indirect costs, then like, then we like, we live in abstraction land. Like we can't, you can't make a law around abstraction. You need to find a way to figure this one out. This, you're exactly right. Exactly right with Google. Well, it just becomes such a blatantly obvious, obvious platform that we see what we want to see. We see that we can get answers in less than a second. That we can see how our friends are doing instantly and it's updated all the time. You see different triggers on Instagram or Facebook that make you want to continue to go. You have the, I was thinking last night about the circle around stories, like that color Mm -hmm. pattern draws you in and in, in your subconscious, you think, Oh, I'm missing something. I'm missing out on a story or the new post that they add that, that little icon. And those are all Mm -hmm. trigger points to emotions. And I think that's where the disconnect lies with the people who do write the laws and the people who are actually participating in this social experiment to really understand what are they doing. And what they're doing is they're using us to monetize because they're telling advertisers, we're, we're making these people, our users, addicted to our platform so that they cannot forget about us. I tried deleting Instagram. I deleted it for probably two weeks during this quarantine. And then I remember there was an event going on. Sports were coming back. And I was like, oh, I need Instagram back. And I I can't go away. I turn off notifications. I think that might even be worse because now I just don't even know what I have available. And I continue to go back. It's working directly into their hands. Think about this, Shevitz. I mean, we killed uh, Che Guevara because he had control over, I think, like four or five million people in Cuba. I mean, he had like real autocratic control. And the CIA came in and said, like, you can't like control people like that. You can't like influence their thought like this. You can't be like that. So, so he was removed of, disposed of. Mark Zuckerberg is an undisputed leader of Facebook and will never be asked to resign as CEO, will never be forced to normal challenges authority. There's never going to be a new CEO for Facebook. And he controls what 
the entire Southern Hemisphere, the population of the entire Southern Hemisphere plus Canada sees every day when they log in. And is it really right for one person who cannot be removed under any possible circumstances to have that much influence over what so many people view and understand as their reality? Now, that's a little radical. Some people might try to interpret that as I think Zuckerberg should be disposed of. I think that's, that's not what I said. But this is, this is a tough conversation with regards to who gets to control what we see. And I don't want four or five people controlling how I live my reality and how billions of people control their reality. That's a, that's a big cue. Yeah, we're in the northern hemisphere, right? Though, that's correct. All right, you said southern. I just want to make sure the pop, but the population of everybody in the southern hemisphere. That's how many people he take the planet, cut it in half. How many people are in the southern oh, hemisphere? So true. That's how many eyeballs there are on Facebook. That's so true. So that's, I'm trying to say, with Cas with uh, Che Guevara, he only had like a million or two million people. Now multiply that by, you know, a couple thousand. So now we have like billions, 4 billion people. What would we do with a dictator of 4 billion people and they're in his army? Yeah, I mean, I remember when Zoom came on and everyone was scared that Zoom was going to be taking our, our facial recognition or something like that. And then you or it's coming in from China or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and then TikTok was similar. China is taking our, our facial recognition and, and using it, when in reality, companies like Facebook have been using that for years and we're just complacent with it. And I know it is a touchy subject, but I think this is, in a sense, where we are in the universe because we are all more connected now than ever before. And we're now having to face the question how does machine learning and, and artificial intelligence become a, a part of us now? And, and what does that look like? Cause you mentioned Tesla earlier, Elon Musk saying that we're going to have Neuralink within the next three years. I think we're more anxious than ever and looking for more answers than ever now. And how are they going to capitalize on it? I, um, I, I don't think I would ever put something in my brain. And I know this sounds very Luddite, like thinking, you know, oh, Johnny, just need technology, but... I I don't know the word Luddite. Oh, a Luddite Luddite were a group of people during the Industrial Revolution that were famous for breaking the cotton gins because they didn't want machines taking the jobs of spinning cotton. I'm so glad I had that. So a Luddite... (laughs) (laughs) So, So... to, you could see, you could say today, people who are Luddites are like, I don't like Facebook. I don't like technology. You have to call me if you want to reach me. Or, you know, oh, boo-hoo, Tesla's not going to solve the world. That's a little bit like, like not being optimistic about the technology in the future. That would be Luddish, Luddite-ish, I guess. I don't know. I guess you could say I, I, I guess you could say I feel like that definitely a lot. And I try to minimize my exposure to social media. I mean, I don't, I don't use Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Um, 
but I do have Snapchat. I do love Snapchat. <laughs> so it's tough. it's tough. And that's where in some way, like we're forced to conform because exactly. that's the way that we connect. And you would think that texting would be enough because 10 years ago it was. Texting was enough 10 years ago, which is just wild to think about. Maybe not 10 years. Yeah, I feel like 10 years ago. That, that seems right. And now you have these applications that all of a sudden are a part of us. Like streaks matter. Stories matter. Just stupid things that we would have said, are you kidding me? 10 years ago, this matters. And now it's integrated. How does that and happen? Shevitz, think about... And, and think about how powerful that is. And when you talk about streaks and friendship relationships and tracking that, think about the time and attention you're spending on that and where that time and attention could be going if you didn't have that as part of your thought. I mean, think about your brain as like a jug of water or like a jug and you fill it up with water, you can fill it up with sand, you can fill it up with dirt. You can fill it up, but once it gets to a point, you can't, you can't fit more things in. So think about the things you want to put in there that occupy your attention. Well, as a human brain, you prioritize. You prioritize your activities. You prioritize your career. You prioritize the missions that you have or the ideas or your your family, your friends. That's what you prioritize with, and then all of a sudden – that creeps up because I feel like these social media platforms use those priorities that we had already implicitly and make it more connected. So it's a tough time to be a young person, I think. And just to make a, a ton of mistakes. I think it's a tough time to just be out there and making a ton of mistakes. I mean, I, I guess our generation was on the end of it, but in high school, man, like, I was an idiot. I mean, everyone in high school is an idiot. And if I had to live with constant permanence about who I was as an idiot in high school, yeah, that would really suck. That'd really fucking suck. <laughs> it's a harsh reality because we all are, are figuring out what our place is and what what matters to me uh and to add social media to that and once you do understand it i think that's when it really becomes scary because you and i understand the back end you understand how it's monetized a lot of people don't it's the it's the day-to-day -day life that continues to go on and this is now an essential service in a sense. You have to be a part of Instagram to grow a brand. You have to be on Snapchat to connect with friends. Why? Well, it's because they made it that way. The, the tougher question is going to be, how do we uncouple our lives with an obsession for tracking connection because we all like human connection like it's a hard thing to argue against like zuckerberg goes into court and he's like well facebook helps people connect and you're like yeah i mean it does like i connect with like people might connect with their family who knows how do you go in and say like you know actually i don't want to connect with people all the time 
like I guess that's a little introverted. It's not like it is like, now. It it is now, but like I uh, I'm not really interested in connecting with everybody every day. I I got my job. I got class. I have my girlfriend. I'm not interested in being connected. And if someone wants to connect with me, I'm more than happy. It kind of has to be on my terms with regards to email or phone or I guess LinkedIn. But uh, we have to have a conversation about meaningful versus superficial connections, easy versus uh, protracted and uh, really substantial connections. We got we to gotta rethink our, we got to go back to the way humans have connected. Um, Do you think we were able to go back? I don't know. And honestly, if you were to ask me, I don't. really don't think so. I don't think so at all. I don't think I so. I think we're riding a wave right now and we are as anxious as ever. We are more questioning. And I think the people that are looking for answers at face value are going to accept whatever these companies put on a platform in a second because it's free, because it's there, because it increases that connection to another level. And it goes towards their attention span. They just introduced reels onto Instagram. Six seconds. They just did what Vine was and they, they used the timing to execute on people's attention span. We have very lizard brains. We like to think that we're yes. like this big, autonomous, like sophisticated giant but we got little lizard brains and if you can tap into the <laughs> the tasty morsel of fly that a lizard would chomp on then you know you have people hooked i mean i mean there's a reason why behavioral science and decision science is becoming so popular today and some of these salaries are getting exorbitant because if you can tap into the lizard brain then you can get really far as a social network and I think the double edge is companies that are trying to do unwinding things that are trying to be a little bit more homestead that are trying to be a little bit more organic with their customer relationships are falling behind. You know, think about a gym that just kind of wants to like have people's emails and send out emails once a month. Like that gym is falling behind a, a competitor that would use Instagram to show off sweet gains. I mean, it's, it's, it's really tough. I mean, we wouldn't have artificial intelligence if we really thought that we were that advanced as a society. I mean, we have advanced as a society, absolutely. But we've done it alongside the advancement of technology because humans are very formable. I mean, we went into a pandemic, into quarantine, which is something nobody living has ever gone through before and we just did it overnight and we've been living like this for mm. five months and we found a way to adapt and now it's just normal so who's right. to say that companies aren't monetizing off of that we're on zoom right now i didn't know what zoom yep. was five months ago now it's a part of my life exactly it's, it's the way exactly that corporations are realizing how formable humans are because in that way it's humans are beautiful to the ability to adjust and figure out how to be productive on a daily basis to 
try and get the most out of every day. And I know not everybody's doing that, but they're living, they're figuring out a way to execute. But then there's the side of the corporation and that becomes the part of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human now? So Darwin's quote, his famous little snippet is the survival of the fittest. And for the longest time, I thought that just meant strongest. So if you can just be like a strong predator or a strong character or a strong player, then you're going to survive. But I went on a, I went on a, uh, went on vacation out in the Pocono mountain range with a park ranger who was talking about this. And he says, no, it's not about that. It's about being the most fit to your environment. Whatever the environment and the circumstances around you are, if you're the most fit to survive there, most able to adapt to any changes, those are the ones that survive. The companies, I mean, we, Chevrolet, we had Skype for 17 years. I don't remember my Skype username. I mean, I mean, Skype had a 17-year head start on Zoom. And this is the perfect time to have a video conferencing software and where is Skype? Has, have you, like, has anyone used Skype in the past? No. My company got rid of Skype during this quarantine as their business communication software. Exactly. Exactly. Because nobody, because it is not the most fit for the environment of video conferencing. Wow. Isn't that crazy? How do you think that happens? I think Skype just had a really bad idea. It was just a bad idea overall. It was, I mean, it was ripe with problems. And the way Zoom is different is you meet at a point in Zoom. And it doesn't matter. Like, you don't have to find anybody. Like, you just say, meet me at the point. And the point is that 10-digit code. You know, when you type in and say, join meeting. That's the meeting room. But Skype was, you have to find the people and so you have a node here. Think about it as like a, a chart. Like you have a node here. Here's one person. Here's a different person. A two-way conversation can go like this, and that's easy enough. But add one more person. Now you have to A, B, and C all have to make that triangle. Okay, so now do that for 20 people and add 20 people's usernames. It's a mess. It's a mess. You can't do it. Zoom is, doesn't matter what your username or password is or whatever. It's just meet at the node, meet at the intersection, meet at the, at the, meet at an office room. Here's the office room, one number, send the number out to N people and then N people meet at the node. And that's the whole meeting It's brilliant. Zoom is, it's, it's a much better going model and it's the most fit business model for video conferencing. How so? It's the most fit because if I, if I'm like Shevitz, Hey, meet me, you know, in Reimert on Saturday night in 209, you're like, Hey, okay. And we meet at 209 in a, in a dorm. Um, but, uh, so that's the easiest thing to do. And you can send that message out to all your friends on lacrosse. Hey, meet me in lacrosse suite tonight. Okay, cool. But if you have to reach out to each person and say, Hey, I'd like to meet with you. 
And then the next person, hey, would you come join us? And then the next person, hey, would you come join us? That was what Skype was. It's, it's a meme. It's comical. Microsoft is uh, really did not think far on that one. Then they came out with Teams. So they, they came out with Teams. All they did is rebrand. And that's the crazy part is how many things you can take from a person's brain. 17 years, you think Skype is the way to communicate with video. And then a complete rebrand with Microsoft Teams, you don't even think about Skype. But Microsoft owns both of them. They just created Teams to tap into the subconscious and realize, oh, they're so innovative. And, and Teams is a whole different qualm because you had Slack. And people are saying that Slack, Teams is a ripoff of Slack, which if you ask me, it is. And what is Slack? Slack is the exact same thing as Teams. It's a business software, uh, connectivity software. So like I do my group projects, you can create um, a channel for assignments. You can create a channel for, you can create a channel for anything. So it's basically getting people that work on a unit to coordinate and, con and converse and talk as they go through their work. So it's, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good tool, but Microsoft was like, yeah, fuck that. We're going to buy, we're either going to buy Slack or, because it's, quickly fast growing or we're going to make our own and they did and now teams works with office teams works with word teams works with excel so there's a there's a bit of a challenge there well then you just realize the power of brands and working for one of the largest brands in the world understanding the back-end science of it it's really not that difficult you understand that you tap into subconscious by building obviously an incredible product but they're doing it unilaterally with racing so based on performance and racing you're able to then market the engineering which then in turn builds the crest and power of the crest is unparalleled in my mind to any other brand because it's timeless you understand what kind of things go into it and there's a history aligned with it just like microsoft you have that history subconsciously you attach bill gates to it but even then even if he's not on that team you understand that there's consistency over time there when you when you live in a developed economy like we do there's two ways to grow really fast and one of them is to get lucky and to be on the in the right place at the right time in the right room really just kind of you know you, you might have worked hard beforehand it doesn't really matter if you did if you're lucky, then you'll be at the right place and that will take off. And the other way to grow really fast in a developed economy is to steal. You know, if someone else got really lucky, their thing is taking off. Why don't we just steal it and make it our own and we'll grow really fast if enough people catch on to our streak. Um, that's not controversial. In the 1900s, the US stole intellectual property patents from Britain for our cotton mills, for our textile industry. Though um, that was intellectual property from a lot of different textile mills in the United Kingdom in Britain that we put on our uh, Eastern coast in Rhode Island, in Connecticut, in New York, uh, because that was the fastest growing industry at the time. We stole their IP when people came over and setting up their own mills and shops. We stole, stole, 
We hired some of the best textile manufacturers and the talent globally that we could find to grow our industry faster. It's just a part of living in a nation that companies steal from each other and businesses steal globally. There's a conversation now about China stealing our IP. Well, China has been able to grow 6% a year for 20 years. How does that happen? It doesn't happen because they're lucky each and every time. It happens because they're stealing. And in one sense, we should be a little bit nationalistic and say, hey, that's not great. That's our IP. You can't steal that. But in the other sense, look, we did it. <laughs> Microsoft stealing from Slack is like, look, Microsoft needs to deliver. They're a public company. They need to get the best returns they can. They got to find the highest growing products they can. And they got to either buy it or steal it because they can't get lucky again. There was a predecessor. There was a predecessor to Excel, Microsoft Excel. Nobody remembers the name. I, I know that it exists, though. It came out in, like, the 90s, and people were afraid to use it. People were like, you wouldn't believe this. My boss was telling me. They used to have the spreadsheet software, and you would do, like, your additions and subtractions. And afterwards, they would hire people to come in with their own paper and do the additions and subtractions to check the work of the spreadsheet just to make sure that the spreadsheet was working right. And Microsoft was like, this is stupid. This shouldn't the thing work? And so now we have Excel. When you think of this, the, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable because you, think of, because you think of the big corporations, they have problems that are in our everyday life that we don't ever think about. We just become okay with it. But in reality, in the back of our mind, we think this is really frustrating. And then they find a way to monetize it. And coming into a corporation after coming out of college, no understanding of what corporate America is, you then realize what the problems are. But then you realize how ingrained it is. And when it's that ingrained, it takes a brand that is larger than the corporation to uproot that. And that's the only way. Exactly. People need to understand how things get done. And we can't tell people about a sugar-coated version of a young buck and entrepreneur that was in his garage and he worked really hard and got lucky, a little bit of luck, not too much luck. Um, and he deserves all of this you know, huge outsized reward because of how much work he put in. I mean, I mean, that is the classic story of this generation. But if you, if you peel back the layers of, well, how do you actually grow a business? There's a few ways to do I mean, there's a few stories missed from that narrative of doing it all on your own, working your ass off. And we have to stop idolizing people for being huge innovators when really not much has changed. Well, I remember when I was a freshman in college, I was accused of plagiarism and 
I had one sentence in there that was taken from a website that I did not restructure the sentence. So yes, by definition, it is plagiarism. And I remember sitting in the dean's office and her saying, if you do this again, you're out. You're not going to be at her sinus anymore. And I remember having the conversation with my parents and especially my dad, who is an entrepreneur. And he said, well, you're going to realize that all businesses are is plagiarism. And you have to stick with this right now, but you're going to realize that you're going to be feeding off of other people's ideas when you go into the real world. And he was so right. It is feeding off of other people's ideas, which in many ways is so beautiful because you have collaborations, you have the ability to, to feed off of other people's innovations and ingenuity. But then you realize the dark side of it and you can put it behind a brand and then the road to hell was paid with good intentions. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, um, I guess thinking about Elon Musk is a great example here. And we love to think about Elon Musk as this huge innovator and larger than life Titan and unbelievably successful dude from humble upbringings. And uh, let me trace a story about Elon and about a previous American innovator, Thomas Edison. Um, we think Edison as really this magnificent American innovator, but he was really more of a salesman. And what he did, he hired Nikolai Tesla to invent a lot of products where Edison could put his name on it. And Edison could say, this is an Edison light bulb. This is an Edison invention. But Nikolai Tesla was in the back doing all the work. Didn't get much credit until a lot of Edison's life story came out. Thinking about Elon Musk's journey, coming from South Africa, the son of a billionaire diamond-owning, mine-owning magnet, right? He's an American now. Musk is now in America thinking about um, PayPal. Started off with writing this payments company idea. And that was a really unique idea. There were maybe six people working on it. They have PayPal. They have a different way to send and transfer money through banks across the world with as few limitations as possible. Brilliant idea. When Musk finally got money from PayPal, sold it off, he bought a experimental car company and he liked how fast the cars went and he liked the ability to not use gas. Thanks. I have a beverage. Congratulations. Very nice beverage. Uh, so he bought this car company because he liked how fast it went and it didn't use oil. It's like a little zippy poo car company. Um, and what Musk has done is not only like build out the story of this radical technology and um, being a larger than life person by using Twitter to build a brand for himself. He's also captured a lot of the cobalt mines in South Africa and uh, sorry, Central Africa and South America. 
And owning a monopoly on the cobalt mines is fantastic if you're the guy that needs cobalt for the batteries that go in the Tesla. Additionally, lithium is another chemical that I think he has a huge stake in. Um, it's fantastic if you need those precious rare earth minerals uh, to build electric vehicles. It's not fantastic when there's a lot of slavery and exploitation in those industries. It's fantastic that Musk is building spaceships to Mars. It's not fantastic that a lot of that is subsidized by the government's research. And a lot of his inventions are subsidized by government research. I mean, and so, you know, I could go on and on forever criticizing Tesla and Elon. Fine. The point is the story of how people are successful. Building like this one a million shot guy who's like fantastic, changing the world, doing innovative things. Know more about what's going on. Ask a lot more questions. How did this happen? Was this really luck or was this really the product of a ton of cover-up, a ton of image, smoke and mirrors, somebody clamoring for attention? And how do I disentangle the truth from what's marketed? It's a, it's, it's a wild character. It's a wild character. But I think the person has a lot more to answer for. I think people are afraid to be characters too. That's a good point. And going back to the That's beginning, we have we have characters that are sinus. You wanted to go to her sinus because <laughs> you were able to be your own person, right? Right? I wanted to be someone. No, I would agree. I wanted to be someone different than my friends going to state school. I wanted to be different than my friends going we to all, We all want to be bigger than life. I think that's true. Do I we? think we all want to be I think we all want to be heroes, at least. We want to be the guys. I don't know that, about that. You don't think? You don't I think, think people there are want people, to... I think people are content with doing their, their job and coming home and going to sleep and, and doing... I think they're content. I don't think... Maybe they have dreams and aspirations, but I don't know if they have the ability to attack it. Yeah, but Shevitz, I mean, who doesn't want to be the guy that saves the day, fixes a problem? You have a statue. You have things named after you. I mean... I mean, who doesn't want to be this character that everybody loves? I mean, that's, that's, that's a question. Even people that work 40 hours a week, they want to be loved by their family at least. I think that's different than being a character though. That's fair. I think it's so interesting to think that we were not normal for going to a liberal arts college and getting others perspectives and really embracing the other perspectives. I think you get other perspectives at, at large state schools, but you're then a product of your environment that you become accustomed to at that state school, because there's too many people to actually associate with, to have a real connection on that campus with a large portion of that populace. And so when you're at a smaller school, then you have a larger impact. You understand how to influence people you understand that it's actually possible to have an open mind and it's embraced. So I think to your point, I think people do want to be the hero of their own story. It's a matter of if they have the tools. You are allowed to reinvent yourself in this world. You're allowed to reinvent yourself more than once. It's not legal. No one's stopping you. If, if you would like to be a hero or a character or live up to people's dreams, you're, you're permitted. You just have to do it.
Yeah, how do you think you do that though? I'm trying to think of an example for you. Well, I think it rather than how do you do it? I think we understand for me at least to gain other people's perspectives is going to in turn impact my life to then understand just a little bit more about the world around me. And then from there, understand what other people's issues are, capitalize on them and figure out how to monetize, which I think in, in essence is what corporations do every day. You solve problems, figure out solutions, find the next issue. And, and in a way you are being a hero because you are solving that, that problem that they were faced with. They didn't even know existed, but if we stay complacent, then that's bad. And that's the beautiful thing about America is that you have the ability to seek out opportunities and capitalize on them. I think that's being a hero in a way. You just have to have the tools and the people that don't have the tools or I think it boils down to something even simpler or more simple, excuse me, is it comes down to the mindset. If you believe that you can actually attack it, that can be the solution. There's a lot of difficulty with being a company that solves a problem. Because as you know, if you solve a problem and it's gone forever, that's a problem. If you are in the business of solving problems, you can't give everybody exactly the thing they're looking for because then they won't be looking for it anymore. So if you're a company that wants to solve a problem, you're kind of better off building relationships with clients and, oh, you know what, we're building something new for you. So you know, stick around and keep us on board and we'll, we'll get there. So just keep paying us. And it's difficult, it's difficult to, to be aware of that, but there's a lot of, um, I call it seat keeping, a way of keeping your seat. And you don't let anyone know that you're causing problems, but the way you keep your seat is by making constant shows of solving problems and saying, we were able to solve problems for our clients by extracting as much time and money and effort and labor out of them as possible. I mean, Chef, it's like you and I can come up here and we can solve problems. That's fantastic. I totally agree with that. But we would be out of a job because we solved all the problems. And I know it's different for different people, but like if you hire, if you hire some people in some companies, like think about Gillette. Like Gillette is just trying to solve a problem. And I, I fix that on my own. I got my own safety blade and I got my blades, so I don't need to buy Gillette anymore. So they, they did not do themselves a service. But they're out here solving problems. You got a hairy face. They want to take care of it for you. So you have to be careful. You know what I'm saying? Well, then it becomes a lateral issue as well. You, you want to make the experience more comfortable. You want to make it more timely. You want to make it you want to feel like you saw the man in the commercials. You want to feel like that man. 
And that's where marketing comes in and it's, it's genius because I was talking to another friend and he was like, us in sales, we don't understand what marketers do. It's like you feed into emotions. I watched the mm-hmm. show Mad Men and advertising is happiness. So whatever you're doing is to make you realize that you're okay. I shave every day. I use my simple blade. I go about my day and I don't really think about it. But if you use a Gillette blade, you get the cooling sensation. You get the whatever feature that they're adding onto their blade. I did the same thing as you. You boil it down to what is the root cause, what is the goal of the task that you're trying to fulfill, and you solve them within your own life, it becomes quite simple. But that's where the marketing comes in. That's where the opportunities lie. If you don't want to solve all the issues in the world. It's going to be a problem forever. There will always be problems forever and if you're the one to solve them that's fantastic and if you're the one to exacerbate them that's kind of not good so your best move if this is a game of chess your best move is to exacerbate a a problem behind the curtain and appear to solve it for everyone else because when you appear to solve it you look like the guy that is the man for the job and at night you exacerbate the problem so that you have something to solve tomorrow. I mean, that's something to, uh, that I think is something Gillette has to reckon with. That's something that every company has to reckon with. We talked about Skype and it's, it's until another platform comes along to make a corporation's task easier that you're then able to execute. Five years ago, Instagram was not necessary for a company's growth. Now it is necessary. In four Mm -hmm. years, five years, Neuralink, that could be necessary to our life and necessary for corporations to exist and to grow and to solve new issues. But we don't know those problems until that platform becomes available and that's why problems will always exist and with all of these new technologies i mean has our ability to live happy carefree lives like has that just been taken care of no because we're no humans are the are so adaptable i i think a better use of all of our time is to remove ourselves and ask very serious questions about, do I need this? Do I need to live a life like this? Do I need to live in a life of constant notifications? Do I need to live in a life of constant distractions? That's something I have a problem with, man. I mean, I'm, I try to work. I try to do my school work, but there's a million things to distract me and uh, not easy, not easy in this time. Yeah. What, what distractions what distracts Johnny Myers? Well, okay. So I thought I'm in quarantine. I'm at home. I think I'm going to go learn how to play chess. I'm trying out the chess online. I'm playing. I'm getting a little bit better. And like, like this week, I'm like, 
Like, I'm only, like, this is a distraction from doing schoolwork. This is not getting me anywhere. I'm not going to go be the next chess grandmaster. I can enjoy it as a hobby, but I shouldn't be doing this, like, for hours on end. <laughs> you know? Why not? I'm I mean, sure. I, I think there's, if you're learning how to play checkers and you're playing checkers all day, yeah, but I think there's some serious intellect with the game of chess. I would, yeah. I mean, I'm, absolutely. There's some very smart people at this. Um, it's when I think that uh, it can resolve all of my issues around not being the smartest guy in the room. And I can go, oh, well, I know how to play chess at an expert level. Uh, that It's not going to solve anything. <laughs> so your goal being this is to be one of the smartest, if the smartest person in the room? That's what everyone's goal is. Everyone wants to feel smart. That's one way of expressing it, is knowing how to play board games pretty well. I mean, there are some smart people in the world that don't know how to play board games. So, I mean, I mean, think about a company's ability to tap into an anxiety and exploit it and, and, and tap it as much as possible until it gets red and irritated and then put Vaseline on it and then go back and tap it. That's kind of, that's kind of our daily lives is getting tapped on getting irritated and then having something come cover up the irritation and then have something else irritate us. <laughs> That's our petty existence, if you will. And I think I try and look at it a different way and I'm, I fall victim to it just because I am human. But if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. That's why, That's, I, That's why I enjoy having conversations with people is because I, can take something away from it that I didn't have before. I'm taking away something from this conversation that I didn't have at one o'clock today, which is pretty, pretty crazy. It's how I try and adapt because I know that I can take something away from somebody's experiences that is not my own and then look to apply it on my own life. I was questioning deleting social media before this conversation. Now I'm quite certain that Snapchat should not be a part of my life just because you rekindled that conversation that I had and now realize that probably now more than ever, there are people watching what I'm doing and what everybody's doing. Well, it's, well, it's tough to try to go cold Turkey on these things. I mean, I mean, I, th I think if you want to delete social media, like that's a great thing, but if you kind of want to change the way you give attention to things, you should kind of more or less try to use it less frequently. And I think the benefit of that is going to be like, if you try to get rid of Snapchat, you're not going to, you're just going to come back to it. It's like an addiction. But if you try to be conscious about your Snapchat use and you try to be conscious about your time and what else you could be doing that's productive and 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 in that front, I think you'll be more. I think you'll be more successful if you just think about the way you spend your time on social media rather than just deleting it. I think I'm so aware of the time that I use on social media that I then get into internal battles to be like, "What am I doing?" And then by the end of the day. Now, especially since you, Apple has given the ability to see quite literally to the minute how much time you're spending on these sites, it's like, what did I just do? 
with my day and not even realizing that while I'm doing one task, I'm doing another task that I don't feel like doing just because there was an event going on on TV or and a story on ESPN or a funny video on Barstool. And they're all using the platform. So my only way to get on that is through this platform. And that's the scary part is that they have found the ways to navigate it and to execute on the things that I want to see and understand that at a level that we can't comprehend. Because people always understand like there's an algorithm. It's there. But really, what is that algorithm and what is, because we learned logarithmic equations and we're like, okay, there's a, an independent variable and then there's a bunch of dependent variables. Hmm. Okay, that seems pretty simple. But when you then look at it from an algorithm standpoint and you're learning machine learning, all of those things are binary. It's a yes or no are you interested in this? Are you not interested in this? It's just a bunch of binary questions that are exploiting who we are as people. It is turning us into the machine. That's a good point. That's a very good point. How do you think it becomes a part of our life? I think it's about tapping into that mammalian part of our brain where we just kind of succumb to the methods of least resistance. You know, nature follows the path of least resistance. So it's not even that the internet is good or it's that it's not even that texting is pretty good or that Facebook's pretty good. It's just that it's the least amount of resistance to send information or to feel an emotion. The, the most efficient way to feel an emotion, you know, this now path of least resistance, it was going to a person and uncovering a conversation or um, feeling an emotion when you see somebody. But now the quicker thing to do is to have those images and thoughts on a device that you can conjure. And that emotional path can travel along a much shorter route. It's tough, man. It's a tough world we live in. Yeah, what what do you think the shorter route is? Because, I mean, I think it's pretty dang quick to be able to go on Instagram, see what a certain entity is doing, and then get off. And then two minutes later, oh, what are they doing now? That's exactly it. And our need to constantly try to do something or want to feel productive and there's a element of Facebook where you feel productive checking and clearing your notifications that feels like a task to be accomplished. And so you get a reward of accomplishing a task today when it's not really a, a real task, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, you couldn't feel right. That's it's so true. That notification is just like that story color and it's been since the existence of the iPhone is that we understand that we want to clear everything 
and especially the people who are anxious about being productive, like me, during this right. point, being furloughed, not having certain tasks, I was left wondering, okay, what do I do? And so I made up a task by making this podcast, by drawing, by doing different things, mm -hmm. making me feel like, okay, I need to feel like I have to do something rather than just going on Facebook or just playing video games. Because for me, it, that's scary. Then I succumb to what they want me to succumb to rather than, right. rather than having conversations, which for me, I get a lot more enjoyment out of. I learned something that I didn't before. And I just spent three hours less on my phone today. Exactly. So it kind of goes back to what you said earlier, where it's, it's going against what we wanted. But then if you do that, then people call you crazy. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about how I spend my time and who I, I don't am. think I am either. I don't think I am either. I think everybody's trying to find ways to, to be as normal as possible. And for me, it's like, no one cares what I think. So then why should I care what other people think of me? I'm doing my own thing. I'm the only person that is me. So I have to make the most out of today and I'm going to control that. I think out of college, you realize that no one really cares about what you think. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think also um, knowing what efforts to spend your time on are probably the best use of your time. Just try and just figure out if I'm going to have a day and it's got 24 hours in, in, in it, well, what should I do with those 24 hours? Just go, just go a little bit meta like that. And you could probably be a lot more productive than you are normally if you just wake up and are waking up and that's what you're doing. Yeah. I started something like day one of the quarantine. I started something called the daily sheet where I have a sheet in my notebook where I write down from the time I wake up to the time I go to sleep, what I did that day. And then I have a to-do list of what I want to do the next day. And that's been able to keep me grounded to understand what kind of things I want to get out of the day. And it's like you talked about that segmentation of where, where I want to go and having that structure that I'm so used to with playing a sport in college and you swimming as well. It's, it's something that we get so used to. And then all of a sudden that identity is gone. Well, we in a way have that superpower of structure and once it's taken away, you have an ability to apply it to other areas of your life. What else, Travis? Anything else? This has been a long one. Going for two hours. I appreciate you taking the time. I, I actually really enjoyed this conversation. This has been a great, this has been a lot of fun. I love this. This is awesome. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. This has been this has been something that I, uh, every podcast is different. And I think this one is no exception. Yeah. I think I learned a lot. I hope you so did where, as well. Where did, uh, where can I find this? Where can I find your podcast? 
it's going to be on all podcast platforms. I, I want to take time to make sure that it's done the right way, editing, and obviously just making sure that they're done in the right order, introductions and other things when I mean editing. Um, also, do you have a song that you'd like for for this podcast if I were to put a song in there? A song. Um, I'm a big fan of MGMT's Electric Feel, a little bit of a throwback. Love that. Electric Feel is a classic. Awesome. It is a classic song. All right. Yeah. You got it. Um, but yeah, I don't know when it's going to be released, but um, I've got about, I think you're the 12th interview. So um, we're getting up there in numbers. I'm learning, oh, wow. I'm learning along the way. And uh, it's all about having conversations with people. I've, I've, done interviews Thanks. re-interviewed and no thank you you took the time out of your day to do this so um i appreciate you i enjoyed it and i hope you enjoyed it as well i appreciate you too man this has been a it's been a great conversation definitely learned a lot and uh i'm excited to hear your other episodes absolutely i'll let you know when they're released and you have a great rest of your day johnny hey you too man great talking you too see you later have a good one you too. conversation i had a blast learned so much from you thank you so much for coming on next week we've got sarah waldman sarah and i went to ledoux horton watkins high school in st louis missouri together graduated same class she played field hockey and lacrosse in high school and now she is in law school in new york city with her own vlog killing it on youtube Check her out before the episode, during the episode, after the episode. She's definitely worth checking out her channel, Sarah Waldman. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate you. Hope you enjoyed the experience. Love you guys. See you next week. Shock me like an electric